Hi, this is Sarah Coco, grant writer at the Sergeant Shriver National Center on Poverty Law, a national leader in advancing justice and opportunity. I want to welcome you to The Witness. A monthly podcast where we bring you first-hand stories from attorneys and advocates who are on the front lines of fighting for justice for people living in poverty. The Witness is a project of the Shriver Center's Clearinghouse community. Today's episode is the sixth and final episode in an ongoing mini-series about the Tennessee Alliance for Legal Services. Founded in 1977, TALS is a statewide coordinator for civil legal aid programs in Tennessee. During its 40th anniversary celebration at its Equal Justice University event, we got to talk with some of the lawyers and advocates who came together from across the state. We learned about their lives, their careers, and their hopes for the future of legal aid in Tennessee. Our last episode, we talked with two Tennessee Supreme Court justices on the story of the Access to Justice Commission. In this final TALS episode, we return to legal aid lawyers as we learn more about the legal services movement and what they hope the future holds. Anne Pruitt is the executive director of TALS, a position she has held since 2013. In a conversation with Stuart Clifton, an attorney and government relations consultant for TALS, they talk about the beginning of TALS. Well, um, I obviously did not go to law school to work for a state support office for legal services because they didn't have anything like that as far as I knew at the time. Uh, So for me, it started out being a a legal services attorney. It started out with Ashley Wiltshire. Mm. Uh, I was an undergraduate at Vanderbilt and um, I knew his wife who was a classics professor. I was trying to decide (coughs) what to do. after college and thought a little bit about law school, but didn't had never really met a lawyer. No one in my family had ever been to college, didn't know any lawyers. And this professor said, you know, my husband is a legal aid lawyer. And I said, well, that sounds interesting. Um, we met, I decided not only to go to law school based on that conversation, but to do legal services work. It's a conversation with Ashley with Wiltshire. With Ashley Wiltshire, that's with so Susan cool. there. Right? Oh, that's cool. Um, and Ashley, of course, mm. was for many, many years after that mm-hmm. a close friend and still is. Yeah. But has has retired now after creating a lot of good stuff here. Um, So that's how I got involved. Um, I I literally had never grown up, I I didn't know a lawyer growing up. I'd never met a lawyer uh, other than maybe somebody at church that I didn't really know well. Um, No one in my family had ever gone to college, um, but I ended up um, getting into Vanderbilt and and then meeting Ashley about my senior year and deciding, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And I kind of knew from the, that conversation that that's what I was going to do. So I graduated from law school uh, without a job because legal aid did not have any money uh, mm-hmm. to hire. So I told uh, Ashley and David Tarpley, uh, another friend, another icon. Uh, icon, that I would be doing my part-time work as a janitor, which is what I was doing, uh, wow. for, for a little spending money. And when they found me a job... You've done it all, Stuart, yeah. literally. <laughs> when they found a <laughs> job, I would be glad to come to work. And <laughs> But I hoped it would be sooner because <coughs> I wasn't making much yeah. money. So I actually got hired after two months of that. Got a call one day and said, well, we're ready. Come in. So I, I guess they figured that I was just going to be hovering over them for the rest of my career if they didn't hire me. So they did finally hire me. And that was it? Legal Aid Society of mm-hmm. Middle Tennessee. Right. What year was that? That was in late 76. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the first TALS conference was in 77. And uh, I think I, I've tried to think back over it. And based on when my children were born, I, it's possible I've missed one. Mm-hmm. But I feel You're like I've been to at everyone. least 39 out of 40 of these. So I was about nine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. That's when this great. this was happening. 
it's just great. I really appreciate the chance to sit down with you and hear this because we need to. I don't think you knew some of that. The janitor part, I did not know. <laughs> I love it. It's great. It was part time. And what kind of cases were you taking? When I first started? Yeah. Uh, public benefits. Okay. We had a very active um, food stamp advocacy program at the time that the mm -hmm. program was new and there was no due process involved and mm -hmm. it was all sorts of systemic problems and um, we kind of straightened it out. So s for many years my, my actual workload was primarily um, people with problems with the Department of Human Services one way or the other and so I got to be an expert at fair hearings and, at, uh, and in class actions as well. So. So I, I had a very direct route into it, but, but one that, that is a little <coughs> bit probable, uh, given the, the, my family given background. Given your background, yeah. yeah. And yours was totally different than mine, because I don't think you anticipated being a legal services, uh, legal aid lawyer. I didn't. I, I anticipated <laughs> being a pro bono lawyer, but you yeah. know I came at it sort of the opposite end yeah. from you, in that all the men in my family were lawyers, and all the women <laughs> were teachers. And so um, there was a lot of pressure for one of us to be, one of the girls, to be a lawyer. So I took the LSAT in secret at my twin sister's college because I, I didn't this, want my dad no. to know until I was sure. Because once, you know, once I said anything about he I would, might want to be a lawyer, it would be the end it. of it. Yeah, be <laughs> the, so, um, so I went to Furman and took the LSAT in secret. And um, then I got my results and then I told my dad. He parents. was pretty happy, I guess. Yeah, he was really happy. <laughs> And um, private practice and then corporate practice. And that really surprised me that I, because I always felt that I would be a trial lawyer and I loved it. But then when I got into the corporate world, I really loved understanding business and law and together how mm -hmm. you can um, make good solutions. And then I opened the TBA journal and saw an ad mm -hmm. uh, about the TALS executive director position and I called you. I think you are, yeah. I think you may be. The only director of a legal aid program in Tennessee that that um, did not begin their work as a staff attorney at a legal aid mm -hmm. office or something akin to that. So you had a, an entire career basically in mm -hmm. in non legal services work, non legal aid work, and that must to me that that that's a uh, uh, that's something I'd like you to elaborate on. What what caused you to want to do that, and how has it worked out? Because well, we'll see how it worked out. Well, I'm not sure what, yet. Three years, four years? Four years, okay. four years. Seems to be working out pretty well. Four years. Well, I mean, I loved, I loved my practice at Dell. I loved it. Um, but a couple of things were happening. Um, the company was changing. It was really hard for me to live in Nashville and do you know, the work. And um, so I was feeling this tension. And at the same time, I wasn't able to do as much pro bono work as I wanted to do, and I'm a third generation Tennessee lawyer. I've always wanted to live here, and yet all of my energies were going outside of Tennessee, so there was some tension. Mm -hmm. And truly what happened was a day when I was feeling that tension, I opened the bar <laughs> journal and saw that, I mean, it's a crazy thing. It's well, like a, you know, the universe came in and said, hello. This was meant to be. Yeah, yeah, and I knew to call you, because right. I knew you, and you know. When you called me, it was very clear that mm -hmm. you weren't really calling just for information. I mean, you'd made your decision that if, if they would have you, you wanted it. I wanted it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I did. 
Uh, I wanted to know what I was getting into, but I really wanted wanted. And this. you knew it from the board angle mm -hmm. a little bit, but mm -hmm. that's a little different. Well, and it was so interesting because you know terms that are thrown around, I didn't know. Right, it's like a whole other language. All this LSC, all this, and state support. <laughs> so that's you would just sit quietly in the meetings and hope you didn't embarrass yourself. <laughs> well, it's like well, it was. I was there to talk about technology, which yeah. I was comfortable with. Yeah. But a lot of the other areas, family law, I didn't know anything about family law, and this state support word. You know that probably we'll Technical talk about word, it yeah. lunch a little bit today. <laughs> Excuse hmm. me, today. Um, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about what state support is because it doesn't exist anymore. Um, mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about TALS and, and what we were. We were very different now, much better I think in many ways, but um, for a long, long time, thanks to some foresight of national leaders, from the beginning of funding of the Legal Services Corporation, there, there was, were, was dedicated funds for national support centers and state support centers. The idea was that we, we would have lawyers throughout all the states, but not in, we, never, we knew we'd never have enough to really have the luxury of handling all cases that presented themselves and have technical experts and legal experts mm -hmm. with specialization. So from the beginning, the national budget for the corporation had specific dedicated funds for national and state support, which we had up until, I guess, the 90s, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, early 90s maybe, mid-90s, I guess it was, when that completely went away and was <coughs> eliminated. Uh, and that was a, uh, a big change. But at, before that time, um, the support centers nationally and state were substantive experts in the law on the national level that people could call and get ideas about how to handle a case or know what to what to look for, um, what what they uh, should avoid. And the state centers were for training purposes mm -hmm. primarily. We also followed public policy developments and, and new cases and, and, and arranged for uh, interaction between programs and, and had task forces. So much of the things we now do um, uh, we were doing then, but but it was uh, guaranteed funding actually. Yeah. So the Tennessee Alliance for Legal Services and its predecessor groups um, didn't actually raise money. We just got checks, and 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 um, that's a little different now. Yeah, a little different. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, in many ways, it's not as different as you would think. We had great rapport with local programs. Uh, we tried to get out where they were as well, but, but they were always anxious to come to trainings because they, they literally didn't have any money in local programs to have uh, training specialists or, or really a lot of specialization. So they, most programs did not have a consumer specialist, um, and we would organize trainings to put them together with those programs, put those specialists together. Uh, and there was a very active presence on, uh, at that time on, on public policy. Mm -hmm which for lots of political reasons and other reasons is not the case today. Sure. Um, we do monitor legislative developments now, of course, um, and we work on, on um, providing information to legislators uh, about and, and also linking them to local programs okay. so that mm -hmm. constituent services can get, mm -hmm. get done. So there's a lot of overlap, but it's a very different world now um, for, state, for, for, for our alliance. Uh, There's a piece of history that I want to capture with you. I want to okay. make sure to capture. Okay. I think this was extraordinary to me when I when I was learning, you know, the pieces of our history that I didn't know. So back in that time that you talked about where we were a state support agency and then 
funding wasn't cut, it was completely eliminated. Yeah, so, overnight. So um, when I took this job, I started, you know, when you take a new job, you go try to find the people who do what you do. There aren't a lot of state support agencies out there anymore because the funding was cut. And most of them didn't make the transition because it, it was pretty sudden. It was so um, mm -hmm. extraordinary to me that when legal aid had been cut themselves by 25%, the executive directors in Tennessee said this support function is so important that we are going to dedicate some of the 75% of our money that we have left to keep towels running. Right. I just that would, that's something to me that's compelling, and I think it's why um, we have such a strong legal aid system in Tennessee. It was a little counterintuitive, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah <laughs> right? Yes, here's money. Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, it was pretty gratifying. It was quite a vote of confidence, mm -hmm. um, and we've never forgotten it. No. People who who served in legal entails after that and, and who do today remember that. And, um, and we've never... I mean, there's no real hierarchy here. It's not like right. we're the state office and we're we're over these people. It's more like we're we serve we're people in the local programs mm -hmm. and we collaborate with them. Mm -hmm. And maybe it goes back to that funding. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, they would write checks to us when they were um, having to make cuts themselves internally. I just right. uh, that's really a, a powerful. No, commitment. our staff went down in number, mm -hmm. but but we did. But we didn't. There's been a continuous shop. presence since mm -hmm. 1977. Russ Overby is the lead attorney of the Health, Income, and Education Practice Group in the Nashville office of the Legal Aid Society of Middle Tennessee in the Cumberlands. In a conversation with Chris Coleman, a staff attorney at the Tennessee Justice Center, they talk about the rise of the legal services movement. So I'll start. Okay. Um, so as I was saying, um, I've often heard Gordon Bonneman talk about uh, referring to the early days and the founding of legal aid in Tennessee as the legal services movement, mm -hmm. um, which is language we tend not to speak in anymore. Um, could you talk about what you know, what it was like to be a part of that movement? Did you think of it of a movement at the time, and how has it changed? Why do we not talk in those terms anymore? Yeah, um, yeah, I think I did think of it as as a movement. Uh, I went to college in the late '60s. Um, which is when legal aid just began uh, to get federal funding through the Office of Economic Opportunity. And um, while I was in college, there were literally two TV shows about legal aid lawyers. Um, and so it was in the news, and uh, Jim Weil, who's now the head of FRAC, uh, you know, said to me one time, I really thought we were going to end poverty. And I think there was a belief by a lot of us that we were going to do that. Um, you know, I was interested because I had worked in a tutoring program in Chicago, and the it was run by a church, and the person who ran it from the church end was an attorney who had left private practice to represent church members. And it was right on the borderline between the Gold Coast of Chicago and the near west side. And his clients were most, mostly people from Cabrini Green, which was a notorious public housing project. So that's what I thought I wanted to do when I went to law school. That was why I went to law school. And I think we really did see it as, you know, and 
now it's almost, well, you shouldn't say this, it, an engine for social change uh, on a very fundamental level. So yeah, I, I viewed it as a movement and um, after two years of begging and pleading to let, let them have me volunteer, I started as a clerk a month before Gordon came to the program and there was Ashley Wiltshire who was the director of the program for over 30 years. David Tarpley, who's still there with me and has now been there 46 years. Uh, Walter Kurtz, who became a circuit judge. Um, so it was a very inspiring group of people to work with. And, you know, it was wild. It was a name change one day and a class action lawsuit against the Institution for Persons with Intellectual Disabilities the day, the next day. Um, and it was a lot easier to win, too, because the Supreme Court would enter a, a clear ruling and, and Tennessee would just ignore it. And so we could file a complaint and here's their practice, it's in black and white. Here's a Supreme Court decision, and that was it. So it wasn't nearly the slog that prison litigation 20 years ago was or the kinds of things now where everything is opposed. You don't have a class. It's moot. Um, <laughs> All of the things months, we deal with on yeah, day -day basis months, if not litigation. years of procedural arguments before you can ever get to the merit. So, so yeah, I, I, I think most of the lawyers there were zealots who regarded it as a movement. Um, and when did that change? And what happened to, to bring about the change? Well, for me, the biggest change was when legal services funded programs could no longer do class actions and even more devastating um, were really restricted from doing any policy advocacy outside of the parameters of the representation of an individual client. Now that, you know, that didn't come until 96. So it was, it was 20 years later. Um, I think when Ronald Reagan was elected and there was about a one quarter reduction in funding, that was also something of a watershed. Um, you know, I mean, my father asked me about an article in Reader's Digest about um, what a perverse use it was of federal funds that we were just all on our own little um, ideological trips with it. And I mean, I disabused him of that and he believed me. But I, I think starting with the Reagan administration, there was a significantly different perception and the whole Reginald Heber Smith's, which I was not one of, the avowed purpose was to serve as engines of social change. You know, I mean, it was unabashed. That's what it was about. 
So in the 60s, not only was it okay to regard it as, and, and, the, seven, and the 70s regarded as a social change movement, you were pretty much expected to do that. Now, not, not everybody uh, at Legal Aid was interested in that, but I think most of the people were. We revisit the conversation with David Yoder, who is a longtime executive director of Legal Aid of East Tennessee, and Catherine Ellis, the pro bono director at Legal Aid of East Tennessee, as they discuss what it means to be a legal aid lifer. When I started in legal aid, it was generally considered two years and out. You put your two years in, you did good stuff, you got a lot of training, and then you went someplace else. What's uh, it going to require uh, for legal aid to keep you for a, as a lifer? Um, wow. I think that to continue to feel like I've done something good, I would love to say every day, but mm -hmm. most days, that I've made a difference that day. And that difference can be a variety of things, but going to court and actually being able to help somebody right. that day get, like you said, the justice. Yeah. Not just getting in the courtroom door, but having the opportunity to be represented, to have somebody who hopefully is skilled, hopefully mm -hmm. can do what they need and actually get them the outcome that helps them and gets them what they need to move forward and to, to hopefully be in a better place tomorrow. And as long as I'm able to keep going and working with those clients, mm -hmm. I can see myself being there yeah. until I retire. So, Which will come sooner than you think. <sighs> <laughs> or not soon <laughs> enough. It depends <laughs> on the day. <laughs> you talked about uh, observing the other staff when mm -hmm. you go to Fourth Circuit. Yes. How would you describe the staff at uh, Legal Aid of East Tennessee and the Knoxville office? Um, everybody who works there is working there because they made the choice to be there. Mm -hmm. I really don't think that, at least in the LAET, that we have people who are there because it's a stepping stone or are there because they fell into it, they couldn't find anything else. I think everybody who is there is there because they want to be there to make the difference. And you know, that I think is, is clear in the fact that we've had people who are there 25, 30 years, mm -hmm. you know, that office has a lot of lifers. Yep. And you know, even now, you know, it, it, it's interesting because we've had a fair amount of turnover in the last few years, but it was because people had been there for so long, they've retired and we've got this new batch of people. It's kind of scary. I'm the second most senior non-management attorney and I've only been there for five years. Okay. Um, but mm -hmm. everybody who's there, I mean, the fact that, I'm trying to think, in the last five years, three of the new advocate awards have come out of that office. Right. Um, you know, we've had Charity, we've had Christina, we've had Robert, we've had all of these people in that office who even the younger attorneys are so passionate and a lot of them have a, a personal connection to why they're doing what they're right. doing. So it's a choice. Yeah, and I, I think you've hit on something important and that's the, the newer attorneys that are coming in. There was a period, um, 
in the 80s, in my opinion, where we weren't sure whether bright, aggressive, dedicated law graduates were going to pick legal aid. Mm -hmm. A lot of turmoil. Uh, we had went through a period where we had trouble getting law students to participate because they didn't see a future in it. We had 15 law clerks this summer. That's wonderful. <laughs> so, yeah, we've got them. Yeah. And, and I think the fact that they do want to come is an attestation to the work that you guys mm -hmm. are doing now. And I think, you know, the younger ones, and I, I, I've not been practicing much longer than them, but I'm older than them, so we'll just leave it there. Um, but they are so passionate. And I've got law students who, because I do most of that mentoring with our clerks, and I've got law students regularly who are saying, please tell me how to get a position with legal aid, whether it's here or Middle Tennessee or someplace, it's where they want to be. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, seeing that, and even the ones who don't want to stay with legal aid, they're wanting to stay involved with the access right. issues and with some sort of part of it yeah. um, going forward, so, which is good. In our final story, we go back to Ann Pruitt and Stuart Clifton, who talk about the future of TALS. What do you think our future is? What's, what's next? Um, you know, I, I, that I have not really given a lot of thought to. Um, I, I see the need as greater now than when I began doing mm -hmm. public interest law. Um, I see the complexities of legal issues um, uh, to be more, more complex now. Uh, we have more people engaged in public interest work and low-income civil legal aid work than ever, but we have more people in need. And uh, my passion has always been plugging those gaps. Yes. I don't think the public knows and I don't think decision makers know even though we tell them that we, we actually have to turn away clients with serious legal needs that we could help with <coughs> because of ethical responsibilities to, to handle the legal needs of existing clients first. Right. Uh, that is a cr that's a tragedy and we, we have to do it uh, or, else, or else we're guilty of malpractice by not right. taking care of our clients. So I hope the, the, the future holds ever more creative approaches, because it doesn't always have to be a, a client sitting down in an office of mm -hmm. a legal aid lawyer uh, and taking up uh, whatever time is needed for that one case. It, it's, it's much broader than that, it's, uh, and we've helped to pioneer that. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 think, I think the groundwork is there. The, the tools, in addition to the traditional appointments and online and uh, over the phone conversations, uh, with one-on-one -on -one lawyer and client. I think the groundwork is there that we've, we've helped pioneer, but whether we're really reaching um, the mo even most of, of, well, we know we're not. Right, we know right. we're not reaching most Tennesseans who have serious mm -hmm. legal needs and could benefit from, from representation by an attorney or paralegal mm -hmm. who's trained in the, that issue. Okay. We're not doing it. Uh, that's because we don't have the resources, even with this cre the creativity that we've tried to show in expanding. So I guess the future is, is furthering that, um, plus reminding the public as often as we can that, that a civilized society, particularly this country, uh, has a commitment to equal justice, civil and criminal. 
um, and it's a commitment that has not been realized. Right, right. Uh, I mean, I, a big challenge for us, I think, is continuing to be creative problem solving is going to be a skill that we all um, mm -hmm. need to really have in the forefront. Openness to throw out things we've done because yeah. they're not the best way to do it anymore. That's, that's yeah, do we have the courage to let go of those things that sometimes are tightly held because they're comfortable? Yeah, we know how to do them. They yeah. may and not we're be good at them, yeah. but may not be the best. So it's going to be exciting mm -hmm. times and I think challenging times. I'd like to bring the conversation up to the present though and uh, because we're in the middle of our uh, 40th mm -hmm. uh, statewide conference. We haven't always called it EJU, right, but it's a great, right. great approach, Equal Justice University. Um, I wanted, I was actually fairly moved last night. I was and, too. Uh, was good. I'd like you to talk about that a little bit. What happened last mm -hmm. night and, and how, how that um, motivates. Hmm. How's that so, for us? <laughs> So um, our 40th conference, and what I what I wanted to do was um, bring in um, different elements of what I see as our future in Tennessee. So um, when I knew that we were going to be honoring Cat Moon and Larry Bridgesmith for their innovation and technology to help us become more efficient and yeah. to reach more people, yeah. um, that I think is a big component. Mm -hmm. And at the same time. Um, I felt like we really needed uh, a call, a call to action, an inspiring, you know, throw down the gauntlet, at the same time very bipartisan because we are bipartisan here. Um, somebody that makes us all want to just get up and get out there and, and do the work. Yeah. And so that's how we, Nicole Austin Hillary, so um, mm -hmm. from the Brennan Center, and I heard her speak, um, and Harrison and I were sitting beside each other, and I looked at him and he was like, that's, yeah. <laughs> there she is. You didn't even and have to say what. No, and and <laughs> so um, so then the question was, can we get her here? Um, and she's been here for three days, and she's, has seems been like she's had a good doing time. a lot of um, yeah. a lot of work with me in Nashville, and then the speech she gave last night was just uh, mm -hmm. it was it was what we all needed needed to hear, and then to have our new advocate mm -hmm. stand up, and um, you know she's being recognized for doing housing work on behalf of domestic violence victims and to hear that she came to legal aid as a victim herself. I mean, it just, the whole night really came together in a way that uh, was better than I could have even imagined. Mm. Yeah, um, so all that was real, huh? You didn't just recruit somebody and give them a, <laughs> a script. I guess the awards are always the a moving part of it for yes. those of us who've been here. Because we've talked about that. These new lawyers that are coming, because I'm now, I can now, like I'm almost 50, so I'm not a new lawyer, a new young lawyer anymore. <laughs> but these new lawyers are great. Yeah. You know, because I talk about that, this icon and that icon and Ashley and Dave and all these people. But these younger people, they're going to be, that gives me hope for the future. We've got great lawyers in legal aid. So that brings me to my question for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess that's not the plan, but here's yes. the question I, I wanted to ask myself oh, to good. see what this I would is answer. Good. What? Coming into legal aid at a time when we considered considered it a movement of sorts. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, how does it compare now? Um, now that it's mm -hmm. larger and we don't have our meetings in state parks and seeing it's not so grassroots. It's anymore. not so grassrootsy. Yeah, we don't sing kumbaya as much as well. We, We've lost a. Yeah. yeah how so how does it compare? Yeah. And and what do I as a as a forty year veteran of legal aid and state support? Um, what used to be state support. 
How does that make me feel? I mean, am I sad that 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 we have lost the great lions of the '60s and '70s and have had to settle for who we have now? I think I'm probably speaking for most people in their 60s and 70s who've been around in legal aid for a long time. We're pretty stunned at, at the quality and commitment of, of, of uh, the people in their first 10 years of practice, 25 yes. to 35. Um, I mean, I haven't done an actual study to, to read a lot of their mm -hmm. briefs and whatnot, but the commitment levels, the sophistication, the fact that people come in and are trainers, their first or second mm -hmm. presenters, first or second year in, in practice for law. Um, I think there's a there might have been a tendency for some folks staying in the same entity for a long time to think of the good old days. Mm -hmm. And they were pretty fun because <laughs> we were pretty young and whatnot. You got us kicked out of a state park, I It heard. was only one state park <laughs> that I got us kicked out of, but that was not my fault. I think they're some of the greatest lawyers practicing yeah. in the country. And um, they may be more generalist now than we were. We could maybe, we had a few more lawyers in our mm -hmm. programs, um, but now we have more programs. Now we have more, more locations. So to me, the great stunning thing and, and what, what, I, what our task force work and our training sessions have, have proved to me over and over is the quality of legal aid work going on through LSC-funded programs and other legal aid programs is as high as it's ever been, with as people as committed as they've yeah. ever been. So, I didn't know if I'd be saying that, because mm -hmm. um, I thought I was part of the golden age, <laughs> and I was. But uh, it's something to remember that the, the people who are new to the profession, new to this part of the profession, uh, come to it for the same reasons we did. Yeah. A desire to do the right thing, a desire to make a difference, um, a commitment to a more just society, and a willingness, willingness, to, willingness to invest their time and energy and, and their emotions in, in uh, what they do. I don't know. As well as one of the newer to, yeah. the, newer to the legal aid community people, I just so appreciate um, the chance to talk to you about our history because we can't, we can't let go of it, and we can't forget it. So, um, this is a this is an interview I yeah. will probably uh, revisit in my car and <laughs> listen and listen to when I'm when I'm having a bad day because it's been really great to talk it to you. It has been. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this mini-series with Taos. Once again, this has been Sarah Coco from the Sergeant Shriver National Center on Poverty Law. This episode was recorded by Amanda Moore, Director of the Clearinghouse Community at the Shriver Center, and produced by Jesse Dixon, the Training and Engagement Vista at the Shriver Center. We'd like to extend a special thanks to Taos for sharing their stories and allowing us to record at the Equal Justice University. We hope you'll continue joining us for The Witness. Coming up next on The Witness, we will be starting a new mini-series, this time on the Shriver Center's own Racial Justice Institute. At the first ever RJI convening, we talked with graduates of the Racial Justice Institute as they talked about their RJI journeys. We hope you'll join us for these stories. We would also like to invite you to join us for the Advocacy Exchange, our monthly conversations with advocates advancing change. Those are hosted live through YouTube each month. You can find both the Advocacy Exchange and The Witness on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. You can learn more about the podcast and the Clearinghouse community by going to povertylaw.org clearinghouse. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.